the private practice gives an optometrist the ability to practice any way that they want. So I think it's great for the optometrist. Um, when you're in, when you're owned by private equity, you can't really practice any way you want. You have some controls over you. You can't go buy a lip of flow if you want to, or you can't decide to see, you know, 10 patients a day if you want to. Um, you have to do, you have to follow the rules to an extent. So I think if you want to specialize in certain areas or um, have interns or um, do some research, I think the private practice allows you to do that. And I think that, that you know, that, that moves optometry forward. Welcome to the Chris Wolf Podcast. Today, I had an awesome discussion, a very interesting discussion with a colleague that I've known for a number of years who was a partner in a large multi-location practice, not in Nebraska, and then went through the process of evaluating the sale of their practice to different private equity firms. And so uh, they wind up deciding to, to sell their practice. I have reached out to a number of people and I've assured them that I would keep them anonymous on the podcast if they would share their story. And so he requested that we do keep them anonymous. Um, and I thought was so interesting about the conversation was really his process between um, being an associate at a pretty large single location practice to a partner in a multi-location practice to the sale and the decisions of selling to private equity. And so he takes us through all that and then also his decision to leave private equity and what private equity means to the profession and how private practice and private equity may uh, impact the long-term uh, ability for us to care for our patients I thought that insight was pretty spot on and pretty helpful. And so um, I really had a fun time with this conversation. Please enjoy our conversation. As always, subscribe to the podcast, give us a five-star review, and support those who support us. last weekend, we had a great conversation over lunch about some of the things in private equity. And so I thought it would be helpful to have you on to kind of share your experience with private equity from the standpoint of being a practice, a partner in, in a pretty large practice, and then sort of the decision making processes uh, that you went through to decide whether or not you're going to join private equity or sell to private equity. And then from then, probably what's most interesting to the listeners, and, and most people are sort of, uh, it's an unknown, is what happens after that. And what, what's, so thanks, first of all, for being on. And absolutely. And kind of give us a, an overview of kind of your transition over the last 10 years from being a student to joining a practice to becoming a partner and then to, you know, having that decision or even the discussion to sell the private equity. Sure. Well, I uh, graduated about nine years ago, and when I first joined the practice that I was in, I was just an employee, and there were two owner doctors there, and we had a couple of locations, and they were ready to retire about two to three years after I got there, and it was a pretty successful practice with a large price tag and 
So instead of selling it to me directly, they sold it to a larger company that had multiple offices, um, was a private, private practice with multiple partners. And um, I was an employee of that company for a year. And then I became a partner in that company. And we had roughly 20 locations um, throughout the state. And then we, there were different levels of partnership within that company. Um, the senior partners had probably the highest percentage that anybody had was about 15%, 16%. And then it ranged 12%, 11%, 10%. And then you got down to the newer members um, like myself that owned a little over 2% of the company. And I don't remember exactly how many partners there were in the neighborhood of 17 or so mm-hmm. um, partners. And so we did that for about three years or so, managed as, as 17 partners and had some associate doctors that were not partners. And um, it was going pretty well. And then it got to the point where a couple of the senior doctors were ready to retire. Hmm. And they had um, about 16% of a pretty large company. And so that had a, again, was worth quite a bit. Um, it had grown quite a bit since they had originally had started it. And so we got together and had kind of talked a little bit about how we were going to buy them out. We had a model where the new, the new doctors would buy a few shares, a few percentage points from the um, retiring doctors. But these now it got to the point where the retiring doctors had so much that it was a little bit difficult for the newer doctors to uh, purchase that much. Uh, it had grown so much that the, the price tag was up there. So um, that was a little bit what led us to explore private equity. We um, just decided to kind of put a phone call in to a broker and just see, test the waters and just see at that point, we didn't quite know what it was about. We were just kind of getting, uh, getting our feet wet and put some feelers out there. And so that's kind of what led us down the path of making the initial call was it was going to be a little bit difficult for the newer doctors to buy out the, the doctors that were coming up on retirement. We were going to run into a little bit of a cash flow issue. And I think we could have financed it and made it work, but it was um, a pretty big price tag to do that. Mm-hmm. It sounds like it's the same. It's the same thing that happened with the original practice you were in. That was a large practice. What, can, can I back up a little bit and ex, can you explain a little bit on? Um, was it the case that when you were an associate in that other practice that got up, got that got up, got bought up by the other larger group? Was it the case that it was just too expensive for you to buy in particular, or did were they offered bigger money or better money when? they were uh, approached by this larger group? How did that happen? Yeah, that's a good question. They actually, we hadn't, we had talked about me being a, becoming a partner, um, but nothing formal and nothing in depth. And then when they sold it, they didn't necessarily, we didn't really have conversations. They just kind of sold it without me Hmm. knowing about it Hmm. or had the talks anyway. And um, I think that they just assumed it was a pretty big price tag. And I think that, one of the appealing things that the other company gave them was basically cash in hand, which 
I don't think I could have gotten any type of a loan that was anywhere worth that. I mean, like we could have, we could have cash flowed it. We could have paid him out over 10 years and, yep. and made it work. But I think it was just more appealing to them to have cash in hand and walk away. So we didn't really even talk about that. Once they, once they found out there was a larger company that was interested in them, I, I think it was, it, that, that was appealing to them. Yeah. And they knew I wouldn't be able to offer that. Because those docs were ready to be done. Right. They were ready to be done. Yeah. They were ready to, they were ready to be done and they were, they were, I don't think they were interested in getting paid over 10 years or anything like that. Yeah. Okay. So then let's fast forward to kind of the same scenario, except that now you're a minority partner and you have probably just enough skin in the game to care, but not enough skin in the game really to, to influence a big decision. If two or three of those major partners get together, is that correct? Right, exactly. Yeah, there was a, it was a pretty gradual, you know, change in percentage points from the top guys to the bottom guys. But there was about eight toward the top that had a pretty um, hefty sum, and then there was about the bottom ten where there was a significant um, lowering of value. So it was kind of, in a way, it was you could draw a line between eight and ten, but it wasn't quite that clear. But those those eight, really the top four, had enough control that they could they could do whatever they wanted uh, because they had the voting shares. Yeah. And so then tell me about that. So then you reach out to a broker and then uh, this particular broker, did they, um, did you specifically come to them with private equity or they just said, look, if you want to sell a practice of this size, the only way it's going to happen is private equity. And that was, and again, sorry, the other thing is that was three years ago, two years ago. That was three years ago. Three years ago. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so we, um, you know, I'm not exactly sure how that happened. That was a decision. The initial contact was a decision that was made within a smaller board of directors outside of the larger um, partnership. So I'm not exactly sure how that process initiated. Uh, by the time that we knew, at one meeting, we were being told we were going to explore, you know, any outside um entities that wanted to buy us. We actually had not even heard the word private equity yeah. at this point. And then we, we had heard there was just a, when you sell a business that's this large, um, we heard you just have to, you go through a broker is kind of this standard of standard mode of practice there. And so we heard we were reaching out to a broker. And then when we, when we had the next meeting and the broker, we actually had the broker come down and explain a lot to us. We met the broker and, um, I'm not sure. I, I assume he used the word private equity, but it wasn't as um, we we were a little unfamiliar with the term, I guess, in terms of optometry at the time. We just knew three companies were looking at buying us, and hmm. and um, and at that time we we kind of he, he I, uh, the original meeting he said there were three different companies in the country that had the size to buy us, and that he was going to reach out to the three of them and see if they had any interest hmm. in us. So then what, so then fast forward a little bit to say, what sort of offers did you take from those companies? What was the deciding factor? Can you talk about, you know, the, the people that have listened to the pro podcast that have heard Brad Beriego talk about EBITDA will have a really good understanding of what it is. And if you haven't listened to that uh, with Brad Beriego, you really want to go back and listen to that because it, it is illuminating on how they make these calculations. I'm not saying that to you. I'm just saying that for the listeners in general. Sure. But right. um, 
can you tell me kind of the differentials in terms of, of, of uh, how, what, what EBITDA they were looking at and how many multiples they were, they were giving and, and then what made you guys decide one group over the other group? Uh, yes. Yep, absolutely. So the first thing that they did, which I thought was great, is the broker had a pretty good understanding of the three different entities that could potentially buy us. And he put a little feeler out there and they were all three um, a little interested, I think two more than the other one. Um, and he knew before we talked about EBITDA and, and money, he talked about the culture of the, of the private equity companies they already had a footprint in the optometric marketplace and so he gave us a very thorough description of how the other how all three of them were similar and how all three of them were different and in terms of our culture and which one we would uh, best work with and that was a really nice thing I think that our company did and that I would encourage anybody to do um, especially if you have doctors that are going to be around uh, associate doctors or if you plan on working for a few more years from my understanding there you know there's more than three now there's several options to choose from and they're all a little bit different um, and I think in terms of what they change and what they don't change and how they do things and so rather than just selling to the highest bidder I think it's nice to have a broker or do your own research to figure out what that looks like for your culture and for the associate doctors that are there. So uh, that was the biggest thing is we picked the one that um, we thought was going to be match our culture the best and kind of be a little bit more hands-off, I think, mm -hmm. and not come in and change things right away. And so then once we figured that out, we, um, we, got, a, we got a bid from them. And I'm a little murky on the EBITDA at uh, that time. EBITDA was an unfamiliar term oh, to yeah. me. Still, it's and still so, unfamiliar to most people. Sure, sure. At that time, we were talking about valuing practices in uh, percentage of gross sales as kind of the standard for how optometric practices have been, you know, 65 or 75, 70% in gross, national average. And then the equity company comes in and, and just starts talking about EBITDA. And so that was a little bit <laughs> new for us. Uh, we had to have a class on what that was about. Um, so they came in and I think they gave us about five to six times EBITDA, but I could be wrong on that. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I know it was about 140% of gross is okay. kind of what, what we ended up, I think, selling for. And, and, um, you know, that was, that was much higher than we had valued ourselves at, uh, as these private equities tend to do is that's one of the appeals of them, right? Is they tend to, um, pay more money than what what you think you're worth and so yeah. it seems to be their mo of being able to buy up these practices well that's so it's interesting that you said that so and it's very interesting and timely when we had this conversation this past weekend i actually had a conversation lined up with somebody to talk about some different stuff within macular degeneration was my my intent of the phone call or actually what sounded like his intent of the phone call was um, to discuss some new technologies in macular degeneration. And so this guy who, um, again, I'll, I'll leave out, but, but uh, has a, a pretty deep history in the profession of really um, somebody that I would look up to. 
uh, although I, I didn't really know him much before that. But yesterday, um, I had a call with him. And so we, we breezed past the Mac degeneration stuff. And then, oh, by the way, there's this private equity company that would love to come and buy my practice. And, you know, he's throwing out numbers like, like you're talking about 150% of gross and, um, and, uh, and, you know, it's a hot time now to get in. They're not going to be offering these prices for long. And, you know, brokers now are, um, are there's big brokers that are not even touching young associate doctors. Uh, I don't know if you've heard the same sorts of things, but they're basically saying it just doesn't even make sense for an established practitioner to sell to an associate financially because they, they just are never going to get that kind of money from a normal bank. And I, so, so immediately I actually had to take a step back and think, you know, you actually start thinking, okay, well, what's that dollar sign worth? What is, um, so first you got to say, okay, what's that dollar sign for my practice? Second, you, you take a step back uh, from the shock and then you start thinking about, okay, I've got to pay taxes on that. I'm only, for me, I'm only 38 years old. So I got a, I got a lot of practicing left to do. And, um, and it's probably not going to be the change that occurs tomorrow that's going to make me upset with practice. It's probably going to be the change that occurs slowly over the next five to 10 years that I can't control. Sure. And, um, and so again, I guess my point is the reason I bring that up for me in particular is it was just striking after we had that conversation uh, and, and let alone the fact that like you brought up culture, but you know, how do I know that our team in our office that, that really we look at, I mean, maybe we shouldn't, maybe we're not as good at business people as we should be, but we look at them like family and what's right. going to happen to them when, when things change or they've got to work nights or they've got to work weekends or, you know, all those other sorts of things that we like to not have to do. And we like the, fa- the fact that we don't make them do it. So, um, so anyway, so, so then you, you really quickly for me, um, you're kind of like, well, all right, do I need to consider this seriously? And within five or 10 minutes, like, no, it's not right for me. Uh, sure. Right for our practice. Um, and then, uh, so in any case, tell me about those. Am I accurate? Is that how everybody thinks through it? You know, what, what kind of thoughts went through your head? Right. No, I think you're exactly right. In our case, uh, specifically, it was a little bit different just because we had all of the owners and it was fairly top heavy. So when they came back with a number that was, you know, roughly double what we valued ourselves at, it was almost a no brainer. But when we when we heard that number, we all knew the writing was on the wall. And that if the top owners that were retiring could basically get double what they thought they could, that there's no way that they could turn this down, especially facing the retirement cash flow crunch that we were in. Uh, not only did it solve that problem, but it actually doubled the valuation. Yep. And I don't know if the guys at the top that had a little bit more know if they knew that the valuation was going to come in that high or not. Certainly none of us at the bottom that had never heard of private equity knew that. That was, or we, we didn't expect that at all. When we heard the number that they were offering us, that was that was the first we'd ever heard of anybody getting, you know, anything like that. So, so we were all in shock and we were all basically like, well, that's kind of a done deal. Um, just because we had those guys that were so close to retirement. Were you excited or were you, were you stoic? I mean, what was your, what was the conversation you had with your wife about it? Yeah, absolutely. I had some, some good conversations with my wife, but also some good conversations with 
some friends that I had within the, the company that had the same amount of shares that I did and were about my same age and were in that same boat. And it was definitely mixed feelings. And some of the partners, younger partners, you know, they, we all had um, a little bit of a different um, feelings on it. Certainly we were, we were all, we all had money in the game. And even though it was a small percentage, it was of a pretty big company. So yep. the, the double valuation was, was pretty nice. Um, there was always the side, you know, that side, they wanted to buy us out for more money than we had paid for it. And, um, so we certainly couldn't deny that that part, um, felt pretty good in the short term. But then obviously we had a lot of things to kind of, I would say think through, although with the way we were set up, it was going to be pretty much a done deal, but just things to think through, is this going to be worth it for us or not? What does our future salary look like? The things that you mentioned, what is our, um, are they going to come in and change our schedule or add more hours or cut our staff? I mean, those were all concerns, uh, certainly that we processed. And um, again, ours was a little different. We didn't have a lot of choice. Um, in fact, I think we took an informal vote, but we all kind of knew we were in this together and, mm. and it was going down. So I don't even think we had a real official vote. We just knew as soon as that valuation came back that this was going to happen. Um, but in the beginning, we were all a little, little bit nervous um, to see what would happen when somebody else owned us because we were all pretty happy with where we were at. Um, but if you're somebody that's in more control of your own place, I've got some colleagues that have been offered and some that have sold the private equity and they've been full owners or co-owners. And there's certainly much more to think through, as you mentioned. Mm. Um, there's a lot more to life than just that dollar sign especially if you're not that close to retirement, then you have a lot of things to weigh. Like you said, once you pay taxes on that, once you pay a lawyer fee, uh, once you factor in any possible lost earnings, because a lot of times your salary may go down, not all the time possibly, um, but a lot of times your, your future annual salary will go down. Mm -hmm. And so multiply that out by how many years you have left and see if, see if it even makes financial sense. You may um, you may financially be breaking even if they're offering you a lower salary. Um, yes. Especially if, especially if you're talking about, um, you know, essentially when, when you think about EBITDA and they're, they're giving you, uh, so you think it was a, a six fold, uh, you know, six times EBITDA. Let's just say that's the case. Then essentially, even if your salary for being, you know, for actually the work you're doing, right? Not being an owner, but the work you're doing, that's going to be stable no matter what you do. But essentially they're giving you six years of earning in advance, correct? Mm -hmm, that's, sure. that's one quick, easy way to think about it. And so, um, so if, if you can take that, you know, six years of earnings right away and invest it and, you know, make more than you can make in your practice or, you know, take out your equity in your practice and do whatever, then, then it might make sense. Especially if you're, again, toward the end of your career, I, I totally can't blame those guys at the top. Right. Right. Um, so then, okay. So then tell me about the actual changes. So you, you sell three years ago. What kinds of things did you see either personally or did some of the other um, now, I guess, employee docs, See, what, what sort of things did you encounter uh, throughout these changes? Yeah, absolutely. So 
Um, you know, for us, there wasn't a lot of change, um, especially right away. They were pretty true to their word in not interfering um, with us too much. Now, they did some. Um, I'll get into a couple things, but as far as our schedules, they did not come in and make us see any more patients. They did not extend our hours. Uh, we were already working a half day on Saturday, but they did not add anything to that. So a lot of the big things that people get a little bit concerned about, I just know it didn't happen to us. Mm-hmm. Now, we don't know what's to come in the future or what, you know, every company is a little different, but that part of things, they were really pretty hands-off. Our salaries were actually kind of stratified. We were, ba- we were all production-based. We had different production percentages based on how long we had been with the company. And so for some doctors, the, we, we were still on a production model, but it was universal. They universalized it, I think. And um, some doctors actually got a little bit of an increase in their production mm-hmm. bonus, and then some stayed pretty flat, and then some took a little decrease. And so they kind of evened that out, but it wasn't much different. And again, some of the doctors actually got paid more once private equity um, took over. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of nice. Um, one thing that, one kind of change that they did make was the doctors, uh, for better or for worse, did not have as much of a say in how things ran um, as much as we had before. So when we were all partners, of course, we would have meetings and we would vote on things and discuss policies and practices and implementation. And, and we still had meetings where we get to, got together after we sold the company, but they were not about we didn't really have any control over anything. So we didn't talk about practices and policies because those were all set for us. Um, Some of the other things that the doctors got kind of taken out of was the hiring and firing process of staff. Um, The staff, they put a lot more um, duties onto the individual office managers at each Mm -hmm. office. And then they actually installed um, like a regional managers to look kind of look over four or five of our offices. And so between the office managers and the regional managers, they had a lot of communication with each other. That was um, formally what the doctors would do. So um, hiring a staff, the doctor really had no input on how many staff members there should be or which ones there should be. We were you know, not in the room to interview staff and didn't have any um, say so as far as that goes. So they kept it staffed pretty similarly. There were times where we were running pretty lean on staff. And um, some of us would think we could use another staff member. But the company would follow a pretty strict you know, guideline as far as um, revenue per hour and how many staff members you should have. And it might have been a little lean um, for my liking, but it wasn't, it wasn't. Um, too bad we were able to make it work but we did we did lose some staff members through normal attrition that they did not replace so we were running a little bit leaner than we had before Um, and then you know like on the hiring process for example it took a long time to hire somebody they had a they had like an HR department that was centralized in a different state and they would have to pass a phone interview with the HR person and then the HR person would have to do a background check and they weren't real quick on that. So uh, by the time, if we, did decide to hi- if we did decide to hire someone, it was roughly six to eight weeks before we actually got that person in the office. Hmm. By the time we got 
applications in and set up interviews and then they passed the all the interview processes and the background check it took a while so that was that was a change that that we really felt when you're running that lean and you lose somebody and it takes you a couple of months to get somebody else in there um but they wouldn't we we had a few candidates that looked like they were great we wanted to hire them on the spot and it'd be another month before they could you know get get to actually hiring him so that was a little bit frustrating at times but um but for the major things they kind of left us alone um again i think that comes down to i think there's good and bad with that you know i think a lot of doctors and that i've known personally that have run their own practice for a while um they're they're kind of ready to let go of some of that responsibility yep. and so i don't think that's a total negative i think that depending on where you are in life and what you're how you're wired to be and how you how you how good you are to business manager and can balance your work life um time if if, if you're ready to just let go and see patients then then selling to private equity fulfills that i mean it was they were they really wanted the doctors to just see patients and they would take care of everything else um so i've got some colleagues that have been doing this for 10 or 15 years and they're kind of ready for that they're they're okay with taking a little annual pay cut and getting a big a bigger payday on selling the practice but their their main um thought process is they don't want to have to deal with hiring and firing and insurance and billing and those kind of things anymore and i will say that the um company that bought us they did a pretty good job of running the the business without the doctor having to put in any input they yeah um they had centralized processes for you know pre-authorized pre-authorizing insurance they had a centralized billing company um they had a call center so a lot of the phone calls actually went to a central call center and then Sometimes, you know, if they needed to go to the office and they would get routed to the office. Um, not everything on that was perfect. There were certainly some hiccups along the way with like the glasses lab. At first, we had some glitches and things were taking longer and there were a lot of mistakes. Um, so did they change, they change the labs that you use? Yeah, they changed the labs that we used. Um, we had our own lab when they bought us. And so then they just changed us to the lab that they were using and they they i think it was mainly the same products we were still able to get a lot of the same same products but they changed the actual location of the lab and therefore the some of the procedures on how we ordered frames and lenses definitely got changed what about contact lenses did they make any changes in in who who they they wanted you to use what companies they wanted you to use at first no at first like we could use you know any company whatever you felt was best for the patient and then um toward the end they um emphasized a couple of companies over some other companies and heavily wanted us to use those um we were still free to choose which lenses we wanted to but they heavily encouraged us to start with some brands that they that they had I know I don't know the specifics. I, I don't think they had a, a necessarily you contract. About, you, don't or, have to, you don't have to specifically say any brands or anything like that, but, but I'm just asking. Sure. Yeah. So um, yeah, go ahead. You can, you can keep going. Okay. Yeah. I was going to say, I don't, I don't know the details of, of what happened behind the scenes, but they did come out and said, we are now encouraging you to use these, these specific brands. And you know, if, if it makes sense to do so, 
And that was the, one of the things that at first they were really good on. They said, you know, if it makes sense to do so, use these two, yeah. use these brands. If it doesn't make sense to do so, then use anything you want. And then that got a, li a little bit more pressure got applied to that mm. over time. And in fact, one of the brands that they um, didn't want us to, to use as a first line, um, they came in and, mm. and, took away our trial kits mm. for those brands and said we could still use them they would just have we would just have to order trials um for those so so I, that I was that totally, was interesting i can totally understand the the clinically equivalent um you know if if you have four brands and they're going to perform clinically equivalent based on your judgment as the physician then you know there 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 could be one or two that would be ideal for the business decisions that are made. I mean, people, people who are completely independent may look at that and be like, that's crazy. But the reality is like hospitals do it all the time. Community health centers do it all the time. I mean, they, sure. they, if they're going to buy catheters at a hospital, they're buying them from, you know, one manufacturer and they're, they're going to have, you know, that's going to, because they're going to get the best deal doing that. Sure. Unless, Absolutely. For some reason you need a smaller, you know, caliber catheter and, uh, and that one company doesn't make it well, okay, we're going to use a different one. But so I, I guess I understand that, but you know, the tactics that can be used to try to dissuade, um, that's interesting where you're actually pulling it out. Uh, that's interesting. Well, and I will say that I don't know at what level that was, that decision sure, was made. Sure. And yeah. after, um, actually after I left the company, I brought that up when I was talking to uh, higher up in the company uh, about, you know, that particular instance. And for what it's worth, he told me that that was not supposed to happen. Okay. It did. Um, <laughs> it did happen, but he, he, he said that it wasn't supposed to happen. So, um, but they were pretty good about, you know, we could get any product and I think it certainly makes sense. I mean, this is a, a, a it's, it's a company, you know, optometry is so pressured by, you know, insurance and reducing rates and, and um, we're so legislated that to save money by using a couple of companies, especially with the portfolios that are out there now, where they have multiple different brands within the same company, you know, we were all okay kind of focusing on those two. That really didn't rub anybody the wrong way. But like you said, if you start to take it a little bit overboard and come in and throw away the, the trials, that's where that did rub me a little bit the wrong way. Yeah. Well, that's just, I think that's the fear of, you know, yeah. of most of us is that it, it's, again, it's not the change that happens tomorrow. It's the cumulative change that happens over years. So then what, so, okay. So now we, we move forward. I, I hear a lot of the things you're talking about, but you just said that, that you're not with the company anymore. So what was the final straw that made you say, look, I, I'm going to, I'm going to part ways. Well, honestly, it wasn't, it wasn't even necessarily the, the, the cell. Um, we were uh, moving to a different city. We were looking to move to a different city for the last few years anyway. Mm -hmm. And um, it was just the right time. And so we were, we were going to leave anyway. And for a few years, I was kind of hoping that the company that I worked for, the private equity, would buy um, some offices in the city that we moved to because mm -hmm. I wanted to continue to work with them well, I, mean, I had an eight to five job and and it was it was pretty easy but then and i think this is where the listeners or anybody that is contemplating selling the private equity really has to 
ask themselves how they're wired because mm. I think for me, I ultimately decided to leave the company because I wanted to be an owner and have more decision making. I didn't know that necessarily until a couple of years after they bought it. And I realized mm. I had no input and no decisions. And that was frustrating for me. It wasn't anything that the company necessarily did per se. Um, they were actually a really good company to work for. Um, but I, I am wired to, I want my voice heard. I want my decisions to matter. Um, and I don't have to make every decision, but when I don't get to make any decisions about the workplace that I'm in and about how things are going to be run and, you know, it's, it's yours, you're at the will of the man. And, hmm. you know, that just that gets a little bit frustrating for somebody that does like to, you know, have a say and has opinions and things of that nature. So I think that's, that's, I think that's the main thing that people need to think about if they're going to sell to private equity and they still have several years left in their career. Well, it's interesting. I think about the fact that, you know, the saying that the grass is always greener and what you're talking about at the, the very beginning of somebody that you said maybe have been, has been doing this 10 or 15 years longer than you have. And they're tired of paying bills or tired of, you know, the business management of the practice and they just want to see patients. I wonder are more of them, and you, you may have experience with this when you talk to some of your other colleagues that, that were partners before and now are employees with this private group, is it that at first it's just sort of a relief that you don't have to mess with that? And then all of a sudden it's like, well, I want to I mess with that. I really do want to mess with it. And it's just that, that, well, maybe it just got so overwhelming at one point and then you make the change. And then a few years later, you're just like, well, I, I kind of like having those. Things. I mean, what's your thought about that? I think that's a great question. And I think that for me, that was the case. And it's even interesting for me because I didn't make that many decisions even when I was a partner. And a lot of the people that were my age with my low percentage of ownership didn't make that many decisions either. We made mm -hmm. some decisions on a local level. So I would I had definitely had an input in, you know, hiring and firing and some input on raises, um, input on how the staff, you know, how we flowed in our specific office. But there was a lot of things I also didn't have input on, but I was okay with that. That, that I felt like we were in good hands. And although I didn't, couldn't control what frames we bought or what insurance we took necessarily, because um, I had 18 other partners, I still felt like my voice was heard and mm -hmm. I, I made enough decisions to where, um, you know, I guess my outlet was, I, I had enough decisions that I could have that outlet within our company. That's hard for me to, to answer that question, Chris, because it, a lot of us, it was such a well-run machine by the time I joined it, even with the partners that there wasn't a lot of decisions to be made. It was just already kind of going. So a lot of us younger doctors, we didn't have a lot of bills to pay. We had everything centralized and we had, you know, we had all that in place anyway. So a lot of us, even though we were partners, we weren't really doing all the work that somebody in a smaller private practice would be doing. Right. Um, and then our older ones, our older doctors who hadn't done all that work and had laid all that foundation, well, they, they were ready to, you know, to kind of get out anyway. They were on the tail end of their career. So I think it would be interesting. I've, I've got a couple of um, close colleagues and friends who were, you know, in their 40s 
and they are thinking about selling and they've still got plenty of career ahead of them, but they've had plenty of it behind them too. And I think that's just a very interesting to see how they will, um, how they'll do after a few years of just doing eight to five and and not having many decisions to make. So I think that's very interesting. What do you think? I'll be respectful of your time, but what do you think the end game is? I mean, what, so they've, this company now has owned your, your, essentially your practice for the last three years. Uh, anything that's been communicated to you about, or, or even just your speculation on what's going to happen um, in the next three to five years? How, do, how does this actually, I mean, when you're paying that kind of money for practice, then you, you're either hoping on, you're planning for predicted growth and then specific returns, but what's the end game? Sure. And that's one thing that our, the, the private equity company that bought us, and then I know of another private equity company, a different one that, that recently um, purchased one of my uh, colleagues' practices. One of the things they were always up front with from the very beginning is they said that the private equity company that's buying us is not going to be the same private equity company that owns us in five to seven years. When they bought us, they, they put a timeline on it of, uh, I think it was four to six years or four to seven years that they were going to sell that to a different private equity company. And I've heard that from some other ones as well. And I think the reason that they told us is these private equity companies specialize in, in companies of certain sizes. So when they bought us, that brought their total to around 150 offices. And then they've since grown to three or 400 offices. And once they reach a certain level of growth that they're satisfied with, then they'll package all of us up and they'll sell us to a different private equity company that specializes in mm-hmm companies of that size 500 offices let's say um, and i think even you know i don't know if there's another cell but i from what we've been told there's even there's private equity companies that specialize in even larger ones than that so it's possible that the middle company comes in for a while and then sells it off again mm. and you know i don't know what the end game is on that i don't fully i guess understand how you know how that works and how they're going to remain profitable but i i'll say that the there is a little bit of a common fear thread that I think runs through everybody that, that has a long time horizon in private equity of when they do sell to that next company that specializes in running, you know, medium to large companies, then are there going to be cuts made? Um, the company that bought us, they, they actually did a pretty good job of really not cutting anything. You know, mm-hmm. the staff was a little lean, but for the most part, you know, they didn't cut salaries. They didn't, they didn't, they didn't have, create a lot of the fear that you hear about when you sell to a, a mm-hmm. big company, but you just never know what's around the corner when they sell it to the second one. Because like you said, that, that profit's going to have to come from somewhere you would think. And, um, you know, is there, is there enough meat left on the bone without making some actual cuts to salaries or, or requiring people to work more? Um, you know, I don't know the answer to that. I don't know if they're profitable enough to just leave the model as it is or if they'll have to actually uh, milk it a little bit further in order to, to get what they need to get out of it. So I think that's the, you know, so, you know, you've been able to answer a lot of questions as far as what's the experience actually like. And then the next sort of logical questions I have through it is, I think that's what it's the, it's the, okay, let's, let's answer the mystery. And then once you answer the mystery, it's kind of like, well, it's still a mystery 
and maybe because you know the reality is is as optometrists if we've run a business and we've if we learned how to run it well we we know how to run our business well we're not we're not necessarily financial guys we don't see how you know you look at your your practice you're like okay well there's only so much money that i can pull out of this practice you know i can grow it and i can pull some more money out and i can grow it and pull some more money out but it's finite it's not like we can right. sit here and take right okay take a hundred percent of the gross and let's say, you know, we take one EBITDA, right? Take, you basically take your year's earnings. You can't just double that. You can't just be like, well, tomorrow we're going to double this. I mean, sure. Sure. So it's like the, the, it gets so astronomically high that you just start to wonder like, it's gotta be funny money. I mean, I'm not saying it is, I'm just saying like, it's, it, it just becomes so unfathomable to the normal guy without the financial, you know, like the investment type of understanding to know how are they going to flip it again, make another multiple that doubles their first multiple and then think that there's sure. potential for a third flip. That's right. Just, I mean, I'm not saying it can't happen and I'm not saying it's not legitimate. I just, that's where, that's where I think it sort of unravels your mind. And so I, I've got to try to find out somebody and maybe offline you and I can talk about maybe who I would contact, but I've got to try to find somebody to talk to that can help me understand that next go around. Cause it's not really a secret. I mean, you got right. enough money, you can be in private equity and they can explain this. Right. Well, and it's been done, I think in other industries as well. Um, and I think a lot of industries are, you, you know, you can't print money or ramp up production and in some industries you can and manufacturing if there's the demand, but a lot of industries, you know, you're kind of, you've got a finite limit. And so how does that work? And I think that, um, one of the things that I think that they've said that's been reassuring and it makes sense is that, you know, optometrists have, do have a choice. They're, you can go hang a shingle still and be, be fairly successful without a lot of startup costs. Um, there's also other places to work. I think last I heard only about 6 to 7% of the entire optometry market was consolidated by private equity. So there's still 93% um, that's not. And one of the things that they've, that I've heard over and over again um, is that the private equity companies, they understand that they want to keep their doctors happy. They understand that their doctors are the money drivers and that if they come in and create rules or slash salaries um, and make doctors mad, then the doctors will leave. Or if they don't leave, then they won't do a very good job and you'll be stuck with bottom of the barrel optometrists, which, which, they say they don't want, and I think I believe them because I think that at the end of the day, we are the ones that are working hard to, to create this money. So I think that that's true. I think that whoever buys um, us on the second flip or even third flip, I think that if they, if they know what they're doing, I've got to think that they want to keep the optometrists happy. And there will be, I think, some little decisions that are made to, that, that rub people the wrong way because nobody likes getting anything taken away. Right. And they may have to trim some things here and there, but to see a mass, you know, cut and slash and, and all that, I just, I just can't see him doing that because I don't think that's a, a, a viable option for the long term. Um, now, if they run everybody out of town in 20 years and half the country is, is private equity and you have a large no-compete, then I guess maybe you're a little bit more stuck. But right now, I don't think they can afford to, to make life hard on the optometrist. And they certainly haven't. I, like I said, I, I've, I left the company and there were some things that, you know, we're, we're a little negative about the experience, but overall, 
outside of the whole how you feel about private equity versus private practice, which is a different discussion, but just the actual experience, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't all that negative overall. So they did a good job of keeping, um, keeping doctors there and, and keeping them satisfied. And I, I would think any other, you know, with dental and, and pharmacy, um, they're, they're in the same boat and they still make a pretty good salary. And um, so, so I think some of those fears might be a little overblown, but again, yeah, at the same time, I don't know where all that money's going to come from. So I think it'd be good to hear that from somebody that knows. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so then last question, um, cause you just, you just kind of piqued my interest about, about one last question was, sure. Is, is private equity in your opinion, is it ultimately going to be good for the profession and our patients or neutral or bad? What do you think? I think that if it doesn't get too large, I think it can actually be good for several reasons. I think as long as private practice is still able to be viable, which right now it certainly is, um, then I think it'll actually be, be good overall. Now, if it gets too big and the competition becomes too uh, unfair, tilted toward private equity to where it's hard to have a private practice, I don't think in the end that will be good for optometry, but I also don't think that will happen. I think that uh, private equity, I think it'll grow to have a bigger footprint, certainly. And I think there are some positives that come out of that. For one, I think that they, um, they can have better, um, I, I would say, collective bargaining power with mm -hmm. maybe insurance companies, contact lens companies, frame and lens companies. Um, so they can apply some pressure to keep the costs low, I would think. Right now, it's, you know, it's against the law for a lot of private practices to collaborate on anything like that. But if you have a large private equity company or two or three, you know, they can't get together. But within that, you can apply pressure to maybe insurance companies that are trying to slash reimbursements. If you have a chain of, you know, 2,000 stores that threaten to drop an insurance company, you know, I, I, I might think the insurance company would listen to that a little bit. Yep. So I could see that as a positive um, eventually. Um, another positive is is they do seem to pay pretty well for um, a lot of optometrists that um, may, don't don't have a desire to do private practice, especially with optometrists that are graduating school with record debts and um, tend to have a pretty low, you know, income to debt ratio. I think I saw it was one of the worst optometries rated mm. as one of the worst anymore mm. um, profession for income to debt ratio. Um, I think that the the private equity company that I worked for, um, you could make a pretty good salary there. You could make an above average salary, uh, especially compared to working for a private practice uh, that was employed by other optometrists. Our, our employees made a significant amount more than the average employed um, optometrist that was hired by just a private practice. Um, so I think that, um, I think there can be some positives, but it does, you know, it may create an unfair advantage toward them with all the buying power that they have. And it may apply, you know, it may put the private practice at a little bit of a disadvantage, but that's hard to see. Like you and I talked about the other day, you know, these companies have to, they have to generate a profit somewhere. So I don't think that they're going to be slashing prices or I don't think, I can't see what type of advantage they would have over a private practice next door. I think that their savings would be on the back end. They probably get lower costs on frames and lenses and supplies, but to the, to the patient, I don't know if that will be, you know, if they'll see that as much different. You brought up a good point 
the other day about the branding. If they could put them all together and put a big brand on it and market it, you know, that would, that would certainly hold some sway, but you know, I don't know. I think it'll be, I think it'll be interesting. And I think there's positives and negatives that come with it. Yeah. Well, okay. I said that was the last question, but I do have one more that you, you made me think of what you said, as long as private practice doesn't go away, because I, I, I don't disagree with all the things you say. I think there's probably going to be a, a roll up of more practices. If it's the case, like you said, when we were talking the other day, that dentistry has, which people don't, aren't aware of, but if, if it's the case that dentistry has 50% of the practices that are owned by private equity now, um, and is that, is that what you, that's, is that what you made mention of? Another um, person that we were talking yeah, to right. said that. And, and right. so if that's the case and we're at six to 7% saturation, we've got a long ways to go. What is so important about private practice that makes you think that as long as private equity doesn't eradicate private practice, the profession and the patients will be okay. What is it about that, that, that is so important in your mind? You know, I think it's important for two reasons. I think one of the reasons it's important is because the private practice gives an optometrist the ability to practice any way that they want. So I think it's great for the optometrist. Um, when you're in, when you're owned by private equity, you can't really, practice any way you want. You have some controls over you. You can't go buy a lip of flow if you want to, or you can't decide to see, you know, 10 patients a day if you want to. Um, you have to do, you have to follow the rules to an extent. So I think if you want to specialize in certain areas or um, have interns or um, do some research, I think the private practice allows you to do that. And I think that, that you know, that, that moves optometry forward. Um, mm -hmm. I think, you know, I don't know that I would say, I don't think it's necessarily true that you get better care in a private practice than you would in a corporate or in a, in a private equity health company. I don't think that's true as a blanket statement, but I think that in private practice, you can, you can specialize and you can differentiate yourself uh, maybe more so than you can if you're working for private equity. So I think the potential is there to provide better care to patients. Um, if, if as a private practice owner, if you continue to grow and learn and do that. Mm. But that is one thing too about the private equity is they, they don't let your floor be too low. So on some private practices, I think as people age, they can become secluded and they can let yeah. some technology or knowledge pass them by. Whereas in a private equity, you have access to training, you have access to other doctors within your company. And so I think you're always going to practice at a, at a pretty good standard of care but you may not be able to really go above and beyond as much as you might want to in certain areas. Interesting. All right. Well, I, with that, that will be my final question. I, I really appreciate you having ha, coming on the podcast and sharing your experience. It was a ton of fun to catch up with you last weekend. And uh, I hope that in the future we'll be able to do it again. Sounds good. I appreciate you. Thanks for having me and thanks for all your work you're doing for the profession. 